We're going to be looking uh, in Hebrews 12 significantly this morning. Uh, But before we begin, oh Father in heaven, uh, thank you so much for this holy time that we can come apart from our regular activities and focus on you and the message that you have for us. Lord, today we would see Jesus and we would hear his voice speaking to us, be it far from us that we would ever refuse to hear the God of the universe who speaks to us through his word clearly, emphatically, and meaningfully for the times that we're living in right now today. Bless us today. I pray that you would hide me behind the cross and that you would speak through me. Uh, I am but a weak vessel, but a jar of clay. And I offer this prayer in the name of my Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I want to begin and share a story with you about Harry Truman. Not the President Harry Truman that you might be familiar with, Harry S. Truman, but this is a man named Harry R. Truman. Harry was born in West Virginia, grew up, born in the late 1800s, and when he was a boy, his family moved from West Virginia to Washington State, looking for new opportunities. When he was a young man, Harry joined the Army and entered into service into World War I in 1917. He served over in France, and it's reported that he received some injuries because of his somewhat insubordinate and audacious attitude. Did not always like to follow instructions and listen to what he was told to do. But when he came back from the war, he tried some odd jobs and even did some bootlegging during the time of Prohibition in the 1920s. But ultimately, he got tired of civilization and he said, I want to move out and settle far away from people. And he found a place on a beautiful piece of property near Spirit Lake, near a mountain called Mount St. Helens. He, re- he leased, I believe, about 50 acres from the U.S. government there and began to build cabins. And ultimately, he built a lodge called Mount St. Helens Lodge. And he operated this lodge for 52 years for tourists who would come to this area, this beautiful lake, and enjoy a vacation. Well, it was interesting, in early 1980, there were some tremors and rumblings around and connected with Mount St. Helens. Scientists became concerned that there was you know, serious volcanic activity and that maybe it was not a safe place to be. Harry, who often just went by Truman, he displayed very little interest or concern about the volcano and his situation. In fact, he was reported to have commented, I don't have any idea whether it, the mountain, will blow, he said, but I don't believe it to the point that I'm going to pack up. I'm not worried. I don't care. I, I want to live here, and no one's going to tell me otherwise. Well, as the days wore on and things got even more active around Mount St. Helens, there were a number of scientific and state officials and, and other people that tried to warn him and others in the area to evacuate because it was dangerous. It seemed that a, an eruption was imminent. Well, Truman continued just to scoff at the public's concern for his safety, and he began to become a little bit well-known, a little bit of a, a minor folk hero because of his stubborn resistance to leave when all signs were pointing, you need to get out of here because uh, things are going to be bad if this volcano erupts. By the way, his location, I believe, was about four miles away from the volcano, right near the base uh, there at Spirit Lake. And so he commented, when they would send reporters out to interview him with stubborn resistance, you couldn't pull me out with the mule team. That mountain's part of Truman, and Truman's part of that mountain, referring to Mount St. Helens. Well, if you are as old as me or older, you can remember on May 18, 1980, at 8.32 in the morning, Mount St. Helens erupted. In a, in a massive eruption with some 540 million tons of ash spewing up into the atmosphere. And it was an unusual eruption because it was a lateral, in many ways, eruption, which means it came out, in a, the, the brunt of it came out sideways, and it was in the direction of Spirit Lake. And so, within a matter of moments, instance, they said it was a supersonic blast when the volcano erupted. Spirit Lake was covered under at least 150 feet of volcanic ash and lava and debris. The entire lake covered, some estimate as high as 300 feet, just buried and covered. And so uh, some of the after effects and the remains 
as far as 19 miles away, there was just in the path of volcanic eruption, was just level destruction for 19 miles. And so all those who had listened and heeded the warning had safely evacuated weeks before. There were signs, there were indications that something serious was possibly about to happen, most imminently about to happen. But Harry Truman and his 16 cats were never found again. It's possible that with this pyroclastic eruption that he was even vaporized instantly uh, because of the heat that came from this and the, the massive destruction that it caused. You know, from Mount Vesuvius, uh, I've been over there, that's over in Italy, they found, after it erupted in AD 79, they found some, some people that had been buried in the lava, and after, after time wore on, their, their bodies decomposed, and there was a hollow space right where their bodies were. And so they could fill the, the kind of the void when they were excavating and digging out all this ash and debris, they realized that these holes were actually the cavity of where a person had been. And so if they filled it with kind of a plaster mold, they could have the outline and the shape and the form of the person who was there when they were caught in that volcano uh, many, many years ago. But anyway, Harry and his 16 cats that he loved were never found again. Sometimes listening and refusing to listen can have deadly consequences. It can be very serious if we fail and refuse to listen. All the signs, all the warnings... All the pleadings that could be done were done, and yet Harry Truman failed to heed those, and he perished in the volcanic eruption. Well, this morning, as we look at our subject found in Scripture, thank you for reading that, Violet. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh is an important message for us in Hebrews chapter 12. And so very quickly, I'm going to skim through this in very broad brush strokes as we look at what we have been seeing Over the past, I think I started studying the book of Hebrews last March, and so it's been quite a journey for those of you that have been staying with us, but in the first two chapters, we see the supreme position and authority of Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus is supreme. He is God. He is Lord. Then in chapters 3 and 4, we notice there is a spiritual rest that still remains for God's people. This spiritual rest of the soul of a connection with our God and our Creator that He longs for us to enter into. And we saw that ancient Israel did not really enter into that rest because of unbelief. That was the barrier that kept them from really entering into the rest that God wanted to provide. Then we saw in chapters 5 through 8 the exalted status of Jesus as our high priest. Many people know Jesus as their Savior, but they're not as familiar and acquainted with him as their high priest. And it's in the book of Hebrews that we have the clearest picture, I think, in Scripture of the role of Jesus as our high priest. Then chapters 9 and 10, the actual ministry of Jesus in the sanctuary in heaven. It's clear, it's right there, Hebrews 9 and 10, and also Hebrews 8, that Jesus is serving in the sanctuary in heaven, actually officiating on our behalf his own sacrifice. As it said, the priest would enter in in the Old Testament sanctuary, not without blood. Jesus himself entered into the sanctuary with his own blood as the victim and the priest who offer and administer that to those who would come to him for forgiveness and for cleansing. And then finally, here's where we find ourselves in the final part of the book, an appeal to faithfulness and godly living, chapters 11 through 13. We're going to finish up chapter 12 today by the grace of God and look at chapter 13 next Sabbath. And so this is an appeal in what we have studied to be faithful and to live godly based on what Jesus has done for us and is doing for us. Remember there's really in our last time that we studied together, which was last month, Hebrews 12 in the first half, we reached really the zenith, the apex of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 and verse 2 where it says, looking unto Jesus. You're awake. Good. Sleeping with your eyes open? Don't, don't do it. Uh, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so I wanted to be clear, as we look at these appeals that are given to us, it's not to be found within ourselves the strength to accomplish what God wants us to do. It's always looking unto Jesus, who is the one that begins and authorizes our faith so that we can trust and believe in him, and then he will finish that so that it is complete as we become more and more like him as we look at today here in just a moment, with our very first verse, Hebrews twelve fourteen, a call to holiness. Let's read the verse. It says, follow peace. I'm reading from the King James Version. Follow peace with how many people? 
with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And when I read that verse many years ago, it really grabbed me as a very significant verse. Therefore, I put it in my memory verses. Without holiness, without following and pursuing peace with all men, no one will see God. It's that important. It's that significant. And so I want to unpack a little bit just in this first verse. What is the peace that we are to follow after? Does it mean that we compromise with the, the principles of the world around us so that we can just get along? God forbid. That's not what it means. We're going to see in a moment a really good definition for this. What about holiness? It's interesting that the Greek word for holiness is also translated sanctification. The same word that is used, it's used ten times in the New Testament, and it's translated in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, where it says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. It's the same exact word as, This is the will of God, even your holiness. So we find this is God's will for us, to be set apart, to be used by Him for a special divine purpose that exceeds anything that we could think or ask or imagine. God's plan for us. It's interesting, the word for holiness. The Greek word is, this suggests an idea of being progressively transformed by the Lord into whose likeness? Not me, but into his likeness. Now notice the word progressively transformed. There is a continual development. It never reaches a plateau and ceases. A continual development of becoming more like Jesus This is the idea that we find with the word for holiness. But let's look at peace for a second, looking at a few other scriptures that talk about this. Romans 12, 18, the same author of Hebrews. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all those who you like. With everyone who is nice to you. That's not what it says, right? Okay, as far as lies with you, live peaceably with all men, with everyone. What about Jesus? Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the children of God. Peacemaking and following peace are important. But what we want to ask ourselves, what kind of peace are we talking about? Notice a statement from Review and Herald, October 15. Whoever consents to renounce sin... And open his heart to the love of Christ becomes a partaker of this heavenly peace. Did you see that? There's two things. A renunciation of sin, number one, and opening my heart to the love of Christ. Then we partake of the heavenly peace. And notice the follow-up on that. There is no other ground of peace than this. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. No other ground of true peace than this, than to have a connection with God by renouncing sin, that is a, that's a picture of repentance. The grace of Christ received into the heart subdues enmity. It allays strife and fills the soul with love. What does the Bible say? Isaiah 48, verse 22. There is no peace, says the Lord, for who? Uh-uh, no peace for the wicked because they have not renounced sin and done what? Open their hearts to the love of Jesus. That is the only way to have true real peace in life. It comes from a relationship and connection with God. Here's continuing on that same paragraph, Review and Herald, October 15, 1908. It says, he who is at peace with God and his fellow men cannot be made miserable. I hope you're not miserable today. It says, envy will not be in his heart. Evil surmisings will find no room there. Hatred, can it exist? It cannot exist. That's pretty strong. Hatred cannot exist. You know, a few years ago, there was a guy named Kevin. He started a campaign after the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013 when someone set off a bomb and people were were injured at the finish line called Free Hugs. Free Hugs. And it was his point and plan to go to places where there were protests, whether it was a political rally or it was protesting because of violence or unrest, whatever, protesting the police. And he said, I'm going to go there and I'm going to just give out free hugs to everybody, no matter who's there. And I remember this is some pictures from, uh, he came to Charlotte in 2016 and here he is hugging police in riot gear. And I just, I think I saw a few clips that were floating around on social media 
how people that were, you know, they kind of got two lines standoff. You got the police on a line and you got protesters on a line. And here's this guy going back and forth, hugging people on both sides. And the protesters were mad that he was hugging the police. No, 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 no. Don't go hug him. Don't do that. Why are you doing that? And he's like, what's wrong? He didn't do anything to me. I can hug him. He's a person. And, it, and then he would go back and hug. And, and they had a hard time being mad at him because he's just nice. He's just hugging everybody. And I know that's not our mission and our message to the world, but I would hope that we are always anxious and willing, even in the pandemic, I know it's sketchy now, but to give people hugs no matter who they are, no matter what their background is. I don't care what political party they are. I don't care what their socioeconomic status is. I don't care what their race, their gender. I don't care about that. If they're a human being, I want to give them a hug because God loves them as much as he loves me. And so to recognize this, here's a a guy who just in a one-man show trying to promote peace by free hugs. Well, what does God ask of us as we look at holiness? Now, in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, a similar call as is made by Paul in Hebrews 12, 14. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation because it is written. Does anyone know where it's written at? You can guess it's written in the Old Testament. Here comes a quote. It's from Leviticus 19 and verse 2. Be ye holy, God says. Why? For I am holy. Let's look at holiness now. Let's really understand this word. Here's a statement from Desire of Ages, page 555. Holiness is wholeness for God. Wholeness, completeness, entirety. It is the entire surrender of heart and life to the indwelling of the principles of heaven. So follow peace and holiness. To be wholly surrendered to God. Does that sound important? We don't sing the hymn, I surrender some. It's I surrender all. Because it's a complete surrender so that God can work and do something in my life. If I'm not surrendering all, then he can't really have access to every area in my life. Wholeness for God. Uh, here's another statement also saying the same thing differently. Different, it's, it's the same idea, but it's expressed in different words. This is from a letter uh, in 1893. What is holiness? The question is asked. Doing everything with an eye single to the glory of God. Okay, everything. Everything. What do I eat? What do I wear? Where do I go? What do I do? Who do I talk to? It's all with an eye of being you know, single focused to the glory of God. Which reminds me of 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do how much to the glory of God? Do all to the glory of God. And so it says it right there that everything I do should be done for God's glory. So an eye single to the glory of God. By the way, if you're looking for a reference for this, Matthew 6, 22 and 23 talks about if your eye is single, then you will have the light of God's truth in you. And anyway, it uses this phraseology of being single to the glory and focus of God in it. So my comment on this, we should ask ourselves the questions, what does God want me to do today? single to the glory of God. How does he want me to use my time, wholeness, single to the glory of God? Who does he want me to connect with to encourage or support? Singleness and wholeness to the glory of God. How can I serve him more, singleness and wholeness to God for his glory and his honor? All right, well, let's keep reading as we notice the counsel and the call to godly living, Hebrews 12 and verse 15, and what the scripture tells us. It says, looking how... Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Brothers and sisters, we are counseled to look diligently at who? Ourselves. And examine ourselves. I'm going to put a slide up with this in just a second. I think it's our next one. But we are called in a number of places in Scripture to be cautious and mindful of our own condition, to be aware of our own spiritual poverty, as it were. Remember, that's the first of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They recognize their poorness in their spiritual poverty and their need of the righteousness and the grace of Christ. They are blessed because they recognize their condition and can receive the help that God wants to give them. 
Those who are bitter, as we look at a root of bitterness, are always seeking to involve as many other people as possible in their disaffection and rebellion. Have you noticed that? When somebody wants to whine or complain, let me go spread my complaining and my anger and frustration or bitterness. I'm mad at somebody. I'm mad at whoever, however. And they want to spread that disaffection around. I mentioned a second ago, the counsel that's given is not to examine other people, it's to examine ourselves. We see that, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves. I'm not to examine other people, but I'm to examine my own heart and to see, uh, am I truly trusting and following what God wants me to do? Now, here comes our roots of bitterness that we were back looking at a moment ago. When you are bitter, you want to spread that to other people, and you go all the way back to heaven with Lucifer. And as he became discontented and jealous of Jesus, he wanted to spread that to the other angels. And he was successful in spreading that so much that the Bible says a third of the angels were cast out with him. Then we move on to the Old Testament, and we find just one example, Absalom, David's son, one of his sons, who became jealous and bitter about his position. He wanted to be king. And so he went so far as to starting a rebellion against his father, King David, so that David was driven from the throne out as a fugitive from his own son who's trying to take over from him. Bitter about his position and his situation. And then we move on to the New Testament and Judas. Judas did not feel like he got the respect he deserved. He was not getting the position that he ought to have. And so he was willing to betray his own master and Lord, for 30 measly pieces of silver. You know, it's been said that bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Have mercy, right? God forbid. I'm so mad at this person. I'm angry. I'm upset about it. And, and we let it just stew and continue to just become root, as it were, and, and it digs into our lives and becomes a a real issue and a real problem and it said in verse 15 that this bitterness it can wind up spreading and and harming and hurting many people and so we are cautioned to look carefully that we do not have any roots of bitterness so this morning i want to encourage you allow for the grace and the mercy of god to flood into your heart and no matter there's someone on your mind the lord will bring to you or someone's maybe many people that have maybe wronged you but allow that to be moved on from and and passed over because it will only hurt ourselves it's only the poison that we drink and hurt ourselves if we continue with this amen well let's take a look here at how bitterness works it's called a root in scripture and so a root suggests a plant and so a plant comes from a seed and so as the seed sown produces a harvest and thus in turn is sown the harvest is multiplied In our relation to others, this law holds true. Every act, every word is a seed that will bear fruit. This is a broad brush here. This is a huge statement. Everything I say to you, everything I do to you is some kind of a seed, either a positive or a negative one. Here in the positive sense, it says every deed of thoughtful kindness, of obedience, or of self-denial will reproduce itself in others and through them and still others. The effects of kindness and love and mercy and grace and those things will will find a root in those that we share it with and then be reproduced in still others. But if we go in the other direction, as our text says in Hebrews 12, 15, so every act of envy, malice, or dissension is a seed that will spring up in a plant. It has a root of bitterness whereby it says many shall be defiled because it wants to spread and affect and be shared with other people this negative bitterness. And then how much larger, the question is asked, how much larger number will the many poison? Thus the sowing of good and evil goes on for time and for eternity. Let us by the grace of God today resolve with his strength to sow seeds of kindness and love and compassion and grace that we receive from him. We can't share what we don't have, can we? And all those things come from him. I don't have it on my own. Only he is the one who is the source of those things. Here is how Jesus says we are to live as his disciples. A new commandment I give unto you, 
that ye love one another. And people have asked the question, how is this a new commandment? The new commandment is what is underlined. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. It's new because Jesus has given them a demonstration of what that love really looks like in how he has loved the disciples, the unruly and obnoxious and annoying, I'm sure, disciples and all their clamoring and backbiting and pushing for supremacy and so on. He says, as I have loved you, now you've seen the demonstration. Now that is the way that you are to love one another. And he follows that up in verse 35, by this the way that we love each other, shall all men know that you really, truly are my disciples if ye have love one to another. Brothers and sisters, may that be our experience today, that God's love would pour out into our hearts and into our minds and our lives more fully. Continuing now, verses 16 and 17, we read here, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. A fornicator, lest there be anyone who is an immoral or godless person. And then it says a profane person is someone who has no appreciation or desire for sacred things. Basically a worldly person, but in the church... Reminds me of the parable that we studied not long ago of the lost coin that was in the church and, or in the family, the home, or in the church, and didn't know it. And yet it was lost right in the very midst of the home or the church. Esau was raised by good parents and taught the same truth as was Jacob, was he not? Same lessons, same stories, same love for, for Esau as for Jacob, but Esau did not value his spiritual blessings, the birthright that was his And he rashly sold it for what? A simple bowl of soup. A small meal. As I studied and thought about this, sometimes when you study and really take extra time to to think and pray and reflect, I asked myself the question, is a profane person the same as a Laodicean Christian? And I came to the conclusion, the answer is yes. It's the saying the same thing. A Laodicean Christian, what does a Laodicean Christian say? Oh, I don't need anything. I'm rich and in need of nothing. And not realizing their spiritual poverty. And it's the same idea with a worldly or profane person as Esau is characterized as. Esau is not a straight heathen. That's why it's significant. Esau is not just a a random person in Scripture who wanders in from the heathen, idol-worshiping people in the surrounding nations. He was the son of Isaac and Rebekah, the grandson of Abraham, the great patriarchs in the Bible, and yet he is described as a profane person. I saw this description, this sign, rather, where it says, there is a common worldly kind of Christianity, which, to be clear, is no, not really any Christianity, just a profession. In this day, which many have, a cheap Christianity, which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worth how much? It really is worth nothing. This cheap Christianity, worldly Christianity, may, may God help us by his grace to look unto Jesus and to receive the grace that we need that we would not live in a way that becomes too entangled with the things of this world at all. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 181, paragraph 3. Because of his indifference to the divine blessings and requirements, Esau is called in Scripture a profane person. Now watch this. He represents people. His story has a representative application, and it says he, Esau, represents those who lightly value the redemption purchased for them by Christ. Oh, Jesus paid it all, but yeah, he gave his life. He came down from heaven, you know, spat upon, beaten, crown of thorns, you know, spear on his side, but you know what? I'm busy. What's on TV tonight? Those who lightly value the redemption purchased for them by Christ, and they are ready to sacrifice their airship to heaven for the perishable things of earth. Everything around us that we see, by and large, unless it's people, is just going to burn up anyway. It's just stuff. Multitudes live for the present with no thought or care for the future. May that not be us that we just live impulsively and that we would just 
live in such a way that we would not value the spiritual benefits and blessings that God longs to give to us at prayer meeting, in our evangelistic meetings, in our worship and devotions, in spiritual outreach to those around us. It says, like Esau, the same kind of class of people cry, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. They are controlled by inclination, and rather than practice self-denial, they will forgo the most valuable considerations. If one must be relinquished, the gratification of a depraved appetite or the heavenly blessings promised only to the self-denying and God-fearing, the claims of appetite prevail, and God and heaven are virtually despised. Now, that's a strong statement. We don't want to be controlled just by the whims and inclinations of our sinful hearts. I mean, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Certainly not any of us. Only God knows how sinful and wicked our hearts are, and only he can cleanse the fountain. All right, I'm going to put myself here out on the line just a tiny bit. Maybe you're getting hungry. It's getting close to the lunch hour. But seriously, here we go again with the toaster strudels. By God's grace, we can conquer the claims of appetite. That's the setting for what we find of Esau. For just a momentary lapse of he was out doing something and he came back, and evidently today they would say he was hangry. Hungry and angry combined. Hangry. And he was so hangry that he just sold and gave up his spiritual blessings of the birthright for just something to eat, which then perished and was no more. And so I have up here on the screen some things that have challenged me in the past, but by the grace of God, he is helping me not to eat these things anymore. And so notice, it says, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Some of you might say, well, what does it matter? I mean, these things are just loaded with sugar and, and all other kinds of things. But anything that affects our mind affects our spirituality, I mean, ultimately, that, that's the principle. I mean, you could put up here, I could put up millions of objects on the screen, but the principle is anything that affects my mind and in some way weakens or alters my thinking because of this artificial substance, it affects my spirituality and therefore my ability to hear God's voice and to follow where he leads me and what he wants me to do. And so I'm not trying to major in minors, but the Bible says in Psalm 84, verse 11, you can see it down here on the lower right-hand side, no good thing will he, God, withhold from them that walk uprightly. He's not going to withhold anything if it's really good for you. And so let me ask you this question before we move on. Is Christianity just a life of drudgery and a bunch of don'ts? You don't sound too sure about that. God forbid. No, God always has something better for us. He has something better for us. Now, I was getting nauseous and grossed out with the last slide, but now I'm starting to drool a little bit. Starting to drool, and here are some of the things that God has helped me to replace something better. I'm on a pistachio kick. I love pistachios. And you can get a giant bag of these at Sam's Club, and my wife and I, we just, we eat them almost every breakfast, and and just, we love them. And I would rather have pistachios than anything on that previous slide. Berries. I'm on a huge blueberry and strawberry kick, and so... Just every day, just piles of, of blueberries and strawberries. I just, I love them. And then my other little guilty pleasure, they're not cheap. You can get them at Ingles, are these peanut butter banana bites. They sometimes, they'll put them on sale, and that's when they're, they're better because they're still not very cheap. But it's just a special treat. But it's, it's a banana, and it's chewy, and it has peanut butter, and it still has some sugar, I'm sure, but it's, it's generally healthy. And so it's better in a step in the right direction. I say these things because God has something better for you. It doesn't matter what it is. I don't know what your issues are or things that God might be pointing out to say, if you would stop eating this or drinking this, maybe it would be a blessing in your life. We don't want to be like Esau. That was the story in just a small way, giving up his birthright for just some food. Let's continue on. Reading verses 18 through 21, the scene changes now, and we're going back into the Old Testament. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto the blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they heard, entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast or animal Touch the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. 
And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, what did he say? This is not in the Old Testament. We have the New Testament writer here saying, I do fear and quake exceedingly. I am terrified. So this is, we're taken back to the time of the giving of the commandments on Mount Sinai. And it was an awesome and solemn occasion. So solemn that the people, they were instructed to gather around the mountain. There were boundaries that were set up so that they would not come too close. And they were said if they even touched the mountain, it was, the punishment was instant death. I'm not trying to scare people this morning. This is in the scriptures. So God's trying to tell us something about his holiness and his reverence that we should have for him. We're going to see that play out even more. It was an awesome and intensely solemn occasion. Even Moses was afraid. But notice this from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 339. Why were the people forbidden to come close? Because God says, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, I'm just too good for you. The people of Israel, because of their what? Because of their sinfulness, were forbidden to approach the mount when God was about to descend upon it to proclaim his law. Lest they should be consumed by the burning glory of his presence. Is God trying to do them a favor, yes or no? Yes. Don't come too close because I am holy. And if you come too close because you are sinful, you will be destroyed because of my very presence and glory. The magnitude of my glory and and honor, it will be a consuming fire to you. And now the point comes to us today, if such manifestations of his power mark the place chosen for the proclamation of God's law, how terrible must be his tribunal when he comes for the execution of these sacred statutes. So Paul is showing us here in the past, we can read about how incredibly amazing and powerful and majestic Mount Sinai was and how awesome it was for the Israelites who were in camp there and saw and heard the thunder and the lightning and the thick cloud and the fire itself. The mountain appeared to be on fire. And now we're told, and that gives a glimpse to what is to come in the future when God comes to execute the judgment for those who have not followed or kept his commandments that were given in such an awesome way. Remember what Moses said? I do exceedingly fear and quake. I am terrified. It says here in Patriarchs and Prophets, never since man was created had there been witnessed such a manifestation of divine power as when the law was proclaimed from Sinai. This morning with your sanctified imagination, we are to go back and to see how awesome that scene was. We're not seeing it with our physical eyesight and hearing it with our physical ears, but we're seeing it by faith and how awesome it was this event when God gave and proclaimed his commandments. It was a big deal for the people to realize how holy God was and what his requirements are. They are important. In Psalms, it tells us the earth shook, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God, even Sinai itself. The entire mountain was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. The whole mountain was moved. But in our scripture reading, as we keep reading, we find God is going to shake not only just Mount Sinai, but the earth and the heaven as well in the future. And that, I believe, will be at the second coming. It's going to be an awesome scene. How will those who have trampled upon his authority endure his glory in the great day of final retribution? The terrors of Sinai were to, what is the word? Represent. They represent something. They represent to the people the scenes of the judgment, which we understand from the three angels' messages we're living in right now, for the hour of his judgment is come. The terrors of Sinai were to represent to the people the scenes of the judgment, the sound of a trumpet summoned Israel to meet with God, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God shall summon from the whole earth, both the living and the dead to the presence of their judge. Did you catch that? That last part? When do we hear the trump of God and the voice of the archangel? First Thessalonians four at the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus comes the second time, that's when it will be sounded and we will hear the trump of God. And the voice of the archangel. And so these terrors of Sinai were to represent the scenes of the judgment. This is an awesome spectacle. Let's continue reading. These are important verses for us. But now the scene shifts and changes after looking at Mount Sinai in verse 22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, 
the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Brothers and sisters, what we're seeing is a description of the past and the experience of Mount Sinai. And now the scene shifts when he says, but ye are come. He's meaning by faith we are come to look at the scenes that are to come in the future. So we find ourselves, we've been given a description of the past. And the past helps us to understand what the future, which is yet to be, will be like. By faith, we have come to Mount Zion. And in case there's any question, if it's the literal Mount Zion in Jerusalem, I've been there last year, it says to the heavenly Jerusalem. This is referring to, of course, the new Jerusalem in heaven, as it's called in Revelation. And then we're given a description of heavenly beings that are around God's throne. Now, who is described as being on Mount Zion? We see an innumerable company of angels, myriads of angels, literally Thousands and thousands and tens of thousands. We see the church of the firstborn. The word church means what? It's not a trick question. The word church means those who are called out. That's what the word church literally means. Called out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9. Called out of the world into a special relationship with God. The church of the firstborn. By the way, Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation in Colossians chapter 1. He is the originator and source of all created. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. John chapter 1. And then we also see here the scene, God, the judge of all. And then we see the spirits of just men made perfect. People ask questions about that. I'm going to try to briefly deal with that in a moment. And then Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. By faith, we can see this glorious, awesome scene that is to be when Jesus comes. And surrounding and standing on that throne there, around the throne on Mount Zion. Now, some people have misapplied and misinterpreted the spirits of just men made perfect to think that this is somehow people who have already died and are just living around uh, in heaven already. But notice clearly the verse says that men are made perfect, not spirits are made perfect. Did you catch that? The spirits of just men made perfect. The men made perfect. We find in scripture the word spirit has a range of meanings and can refer to the vital principle by which the body is animated the whole source of life which comes from God. And so in a sense, the word spirit, it applies to the whole person, the complete being, as it were. It's a cumulative summarizing statement of those that God is describing. The entire person is made perfect by the will and power of God. Now, to be even further clear on when this happens, we're asking the question, when is it that men are made perfect? All we have to do is look a few verses up from what we read in a previous chapter, Hebrews 11, verses 39 to 40. Notice what the Bible says here. Paul has already said this to the Hebrews in before chapter 12, what we just read. Hebrews 11, verses 39 and 40. It says, And these all, referring to the hall of faith, the ancients who live by faith, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Now verse 40. God having provided some better thing for us, that they, what does it say next? Without us should what? Should not be made perfect. In other words, they died in faith and they without us shall not be made perfect because we're all going to be made perfect in the absolute sense at the second coming of Jesus when he comes. At the second coming when we are all transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 51 through 55 makes very clear. So this is a description that we're reading about of the future in Hebrews 12. What will be yet in the future? Now, I read a statement this week that I wasn't even looking for something about what we just read about, but I read this and I had not read this before and it perfectly connected together what this study is about. Notice this, talking about the 144,000 and for the sake of time, let me just skip to what's underlined. Referring to Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, where John says, I saw a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand. And that's what's being talked about in this statement. But notice how it's described. It says, they are, what's the word? Prefigured before us as standing on Mount Zion. The word prefigure is to imagine beforehand. 
They're not literally on Mount Zion, but they're prefigured, imagined beforehand, because the time is coming when the 144,000 will stand on Mount Zion. Mount Zion in heaven is a literal place, but by faith, we're seeing a picture of what it will be like when it becomes a reality. And so this also is, I think, what Paul is doing in Hebrews 12 as he talks about the scene here and says, you are come to Mount Zion. It's prefigured, imagined beforehand, the experience that God's people will have when Jesus comes. All right, let's continue. Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Jesus has intervened to restore peace between God and man. You know, a mediator is someone who is between two parties to reconcile them together. And Jesus is reconciling us to God because of our sins. God doesn't need changing. We are the one who need to be changed by what? The blood of sprinkling. This blood of sprinkling represents the efficacy of Christ's blood, which is called the blood of sprinkling because it cleanses from all defilement and guiltiness. That's actually from the spirit of prophecy. A quote where the blood of Christ and the blood of sprinkling is called this. Because it cleanses from all defilement and guiltiness, I will say amen and praise the Lord for that. I need that today to be cleansed. We need to apply the blood of Jesus, the blood of sprinkling, on a regular daily basis. We find that the blood of Abel cried out for vengeance. The blood of Jesus speaks of better things. It speaks of mercy, forgiveness, and salvation. That is why Jesus' blood speaks of better things. And now we come into our scripture reading where it says in verse 25, See or take note, be observant, that ye refuse not him that speaketh. And this is referring to God who is speaking. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. 26, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, yet once more. Once more, this is future. This is the second coming. There's a quote here from Haggai chapter 2. This is the second coming, a description. I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of those things which are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So, the Greek word here, where it says, see that you refuse not him that speaketh, it is in the present tense. It would be as if I were to say to you, see that you don't refuse the one who is speaking to you now. Like now. Not that he spoke and it's done, and you're just kind of, well, he said that in the past. It conveys the idea that God is speaking in the present. And how is he speaking to us? You know, it is through his word. This is, I mean, he's speaking to us today just as much as to the New Testament Christians, the Old Testament Christians. He is constantly speaking, and it is in the present sense that that speaking is, is happening. And we are cautioned that we do not refuse to listen to what God is trying to tell us. Ancient Israel refused to listen to the voice of God. If you read Exodus 20, verse 19, we won't go there, but they actually said to Moses, Tell God that we don't want to hear from him. You speak to us, but not God, because we're scared of him. We're we're afraid that we're going to perish. We're going to die. And they actually said, we don't want God to speak to us. God forbid that we would say that. Don't speak to us, God. Um, it's, It's too serious. It's too straight. But God wants to get our attention. At Sinai, God's voice shook the mountain. But yet in the future, God's voice will shake the earth and heaven. And that time will be at Jesus' second coming. Actually, I have it in my notes. Here's, the, here's what the people said, Exodus 20, 19 and 20. The people said to Moses, speak thou with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, fear not, for God is come. Now watch, here's what God's purpose is in all what he is doing in the majesty on Mount Sinai. Moses explains, God has come to prove you and that his fear may be before your faces and What? That ye sin not. God is wanting to show us how serious his government, his character, his law is. We would fear to sin against him and take seriously what he tells us in his word and his commandments. That is what God was trying to design to show them. Now, review in Herald, April 14, 1896. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. We just read that verse. Who are those that refuse to hear the voice of Christ? Question is asked. Here's the answer from the spirit of prophecy. They are those who do not hear and practice 
What does it say? They do not hear and practice his word. They are those whose hearts were crowded and overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life. They are those who will not receive the message of warning for when? These last days. Friends, it's my earnest prayer that all of us here, visitors, members alike, will not be part of the class that refuse to hear what God says to us, to refuse to listen to what God is trying to tell us, and then to put it into practice by His strength into our lives. May that not be us. Two more verses, we're coming to a close. Verse 28, wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. God's saints inherit a kingdom which cannot be moved. Why? Because it is a permanent and eternal everlasting kingdom. We see other pictures of this in Daniel chapter 7 where it talks about the kingdom being given unto the saint of the Most High and they shall possess it even forever and forever, God's kingdom being inherited by his people. Why would we want to give up on that? Everything else that can be shaken that's not of God will be shaken out. But what remains is what God establishes. His people and his kingdom. Now, in the King James, it says, let us have grace. It would be better stated uh, from the Greek, let us be thankful. Let us be thankful for what God offers to us. Amen? Let us be genuinely grateful for the blessing of what God provides. And then we are admonished to worship God with two things, with reverence and with awe. And that reminds me of the first angel's message to fear God and give glory to him. That is the first part of the first angel's message. Here comes the last verse. As we summarize this chapter, it says, For our God, because, for our God is what? And that hearkens us back to what we read on Mount Sinai. He is a consuming fire to sin. Sinners could not stand in his presence. But it's interesting that those who came too near and were not prepared at Mount Sinai were consumed. But this was not an arbitrary statement or punishment from God. Because Moses came near to God, he touched the mountain, he even went up on the mountain, and he was not consumed. We can read about it in our Bible. Why not? Because he was in a right relationship with God. He was prepared, he was connected and committed, and he had no sin between him and God so that he could stand in his presence. And that's what God wants to do for us. And that's what, of course, the sanctuary service, which was instituted at this time, allows. The removal of sin so that God can dwell in the midst of his people. And let them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell in the midst of them. Why did God forbid Israel to come too close to him? Because they were too sinful. Two slides and we're done. Final story. Many of you know that my son, Jacob, is working at Blue Mountain Academy this year, uh, serving as an assistant dean. And he is also working there with another young lady that he is very good friends with uh, named Sarah Baute. And they are both the assistant deans there in Pennsylvania at Blue Mountain Academy. And they've first time working in the dorm and they've had some challenges and things, but I think they're enjoying it. They only make $350 a month. You know, task, I mean, a month is, is, that's pretty tough, pretty small peanuts. But it's for the experience. They're getting a good work experience. They have about 35, 40 or so students, I think, in each dorm. And you're having to parent other kids. And it's, it's a real good experience. Well, two weeks ago, I got an urgent message from my son that said, Dad, I, 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 the principal has asked me to go and get some special gift cards for the rest of the staff as a surprise. And I don't have the money for that. Can you help send me some money? And he says, I need them right away. And it's a surprise. And so anyway, I've got to run to town and go to Walmart and buy, he wants me to buy $100 gift cards for all the staff. And so he'd been asked to buy, I think, 12 gift cards, which is $1,200. And then Sarah had been asked to buy 13 gift cards, which is $1,300. And so they were, I mean, you're the poorest staff on on campus. And I guess because they're new, they were asked to go do this chore. And so they said, okay, we'll, we'll go, and, and the principal wants it. He's in charge. You know, don't refuse what the principal said, our boss. And, and so I sent my son $1,200, fronted him that, and like, well, we'll get receipts. Are you sure you're going to get this back you know, quickly? And, and that's a big chunk of my paycheck for the month. And so anyway, all right. And so they go, and they get these cards, and they come back, and, and the principal starts messaging them again and says, um, can you send me a picture of the cards because I want to make sure that you have them. And... Like, okay, all right, we'll do that. And so they started sending pictures of the cards. 
And as they were doing that, later on in the evening, uh, my son began to realize, wait a minute, this, he had been getting communication back and forth from an email from the principal. I thought he was talking to the principal, but he wasn't talking to the principal. He was getting an email, and really it was just a scammer and a hacker that had hacked into the school's website and was sending out emails pretending to be from the principal and telling them to do this. And of course, my son and Sarah, very, very innocent, too innocent sometimes, were sending these things back. Okay, they want a picture, and this doesn't make sense, and I don't have the money. And, and so anyway, at the end of the day, Jacob lost $700 from the cards because they were just somebody was whoever random person on the internet was taking the numbers and the pictures and then going and buying stuff right away. And Sarah lost $1,000. And so that was, they were able to stop some of the cards before they got fully processed, but most of them were just quickly, you know, as soon as they sent them the information with the cards, then they bought them, uh, the, whoever it was. And so the kids, they were devastated. This was two weeks ago. And, and of course, dad, he's all fired up like, who are these people taking advantage of my child? I mean, let's call the police. Let's get the authorities involved and call the federal government. Let's, I mean, how, how dare these poor kids, and they're not even making any money in the first place, and they take away their whole salary for a semester almost. I mean, that's a lot of money. And so anyway, uh, dad was all fired up, and I'm looking on the internet. What should I do? Should I call the local police and, and so on? And anyway, we, we tried to, you know, put on a brave face with the kids and tell them, you know, Romans 8 says that all things work together for good to those who love God, right? All things work together for good. And so God has a, he'll, he'll work things out and it's okay. It's just money. Nobody was hurt. Nobody's identity was stolen. And then the next morning, the, the hacker sent back another message to my son and said, I need some more cards. What are you, what are you doing? I need you to send some, get some more and hurry, hurry, hurry. And, and Jacob said later, I wonder why the principal was just out mowing his lawn when I would go out to town. Because he would go by the principal's house, and he was like, but he said he was so busy, he couldn't do this, and he needed me to do it. Anyway, okay. So, that, that the next morning, the hacker's sending back, get more, get more, get more, not realizing that my son knew that this was just a scam at this time. And this is what my son wrote back to the hacker. I hope I can read it. It's kind of long, I'm sorry, I'm already running long, but I'll do my best to try and read it. I can't even read off the screen there. It says, hey, so I know you're probably laughing right now and saying how much of a fool me and my girlfriend are for falling into your trap. But in all reality, you're not happy, and deep down, I know you aren't. The items and things of this world won't bring you true happiness, and I know that's what you're looking for. As much as I want to be really mad at you for taking all of my money that I earned, I must say that I still like you, and I hope the best for you. Jesus died on the cross for you, and he wants you to be saved. All he wants is to have a close friendship with you. So whoever you may be, I want to encourage you to read your Bible and try to have a close connection with God, because ultimately, he will give you true happiness, and he loves you with all his heart. As much as I know you're enjoying getting stuff for free and stealing other people's money that fall into your trap... I just ask that I may be the last person you try this again with because I don't want anyone else to go through this. And I want the best for everyone. Even though you, you took all my money, I love you because Christ loves you. I wish you the best of luck and hopefully I can meet you again in the kingdom above where there will be no more pain and suffering. What was the verse that we read at the beginning? Follow peace with people that are nice to you. Follow peace with people that are your family, that you like. It says, follow peace with all men and holiness, doing everything with an eye single to the glory of God, because without this, no man will see the Lord. And so that is the call today for us, is to enter into a closer, more connected, holy relationship with Jesus. This is my last slide, and then we're done. Refuse not him that speaketh, Bible Commentary, Volume 7. God has chosen men from eternity to be holy. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. God's law tolerates no sin. The echo of God's voice comes to us, ever saying, what is God saying to us today? Holier, 
holier still, more wholeness for God, more of an eye single to the glory for God in everything that I do and say, everything for God's honor and glory. And ever our answer is to be, yes, Lord. Will you say it with me? Yes, Lord, holier still, more holy for God. Holiness is within the reach of all. This is not something that's too hard for you to have. It is within the reach of all who reach for it. How? Who reach for it by faith, believing in the power and the promises in God's word. It's God who has the power. We have no power. Not because of their good works, but because of Christ's merits. Divine power is provided for every soul struggling for their victory over sin and over Satan. Is it your desire today to have a more holy connection with God? to follow and pursue peace with everyone, and to have an eye single for God's glory. If that's your desire, I want to invite you to raise your hand with me this morning. I'm raising my hand. I want to be more holy, and yes, holier, as God works in my life. Oh, Father in heaven, this moment we are taking time to be holy. As we have heard the message in Scripture today, we want to see God. We want to, therefore, pursue peace with all people, and we want to do everything with an eye single to your glory and your honor. Lord, set us apart, sanctify us, help us to be holy by your strength and by your grace. None of us has the power to do this in our own strength. It cannot happen, but only as we by faith reach out for you and reach out in your strength and your help. Thank you for hearing this prayer. We offer and pray it in Jesus' precious name. Let all of God's children say, Amen and Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.